us this morning. <clears throat> Turn to Acts chapter 25 with me. <clears throat> Acts chapter 25 this morning. <clears throat> and let's just read from verse 1 and then we'll open a word of prayer. It says, Now when Festus was come into the province, after three days he ascended from Caesarea to Jerusalem. And the high priest and the chief of the Jews informed against, uh, formed him against Paul and besought him and desired favor against him that he would send for him to Jerusalem, laying wait in the way to kill him. And let's open word of prayer. <coughs> Dear Lord and Heavenly Father, we thank you, Lord, once again <coughs> that we can be here and we can come and spend some time gathered around your word. And we pray this morning that you would speak to each of our hearts, uh, that you would teach us and, and instruct us through your word. Lord, I pray that this morning you would empower me through your Holy Spirit, that you would give me wisdom and guidance, Lord, as only you can give. Lord, help me to uh, speak clearly this morning. May it be your words and your thoughts. May you hide me on the cross, Lord, and may you and you alone be seen. We pray, Lord, that we would leave this place uh, being refreshed and blessed through your word and singing praises to your name. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. <clears throat> As chapter 25 begins, Paul has now been in prison for two long years. He's been there in Caesarea, in prison, uh, for those two years. And the governor Felix has now been recalled back to Rome and... In his place is Porcius Festus. Uh, chapter 24 and verse <coughs> sorry, 27 says, But after two years, Porcius uh, Festus came into uh, Felix's room, and Felix, willing to show the Jews a pleasure, left Paul bound. And so there's been a changing of governors here. Okay? Felix is gone, and now you have Festus is in the position. And of course, Felix had left Paul in Rome. We talked about it last Sunday. He, uh, sorry, left him in prison. Sorry, uh, we talked about it last week. He left him there not because he was guilty, but simply because he wanted to. <clears throat> well, he was hoping to gain a bribe from Paul, but also because he wanted to please the Jews. You know, I was thinking about this week. But you know, Paul, he must have been beginning to wonder, you know, what God was doing. He must have been beginning to wonder, you know, when is God going to answer? Uh, his prayers, when is God going to fulfill uh, the promises that he had made to Paul? Now remember back in chapter 23 and verse 11, the Lord had said to Paul, he said, Be of good cheer, Paul, for as thou hast testified of me in Jerusalem, so must thou bear witness also at Rome. The Lord had made him this promise, you're going to get to Rome. And so Paul must have been beginning to wonder, okay, Lord, when are you going to fulfill this promise? When are you going to release me from prison so I can get moving again? When are you going to answer this prayer? Because it was Paul's earnest prayer that he get to Rome. You read the, the book of Romans and that's his prayer. He wants to go to Rome. But as of yet, God has not answered that prayer. God has not seen fit to release Paul and, and get Paul moving again. God's timing had not yet come. You know, Paul had to be patient, didn't he? He had to be patient. And perhaps now the time would finally arrive, you know, the changing of the governor. Maybe this is now the, the, the timing that he's been waiting for. 
You know, Festus was by all accounts a far better man, a far better governor than Felix ever was. He came into the office with every intention of doing what was right. Okay, he came into the office and he wanted to be just, he wanted to be fair, he wanted to uphold the Roman law. You know, Festus was soon to discover that Jewish politics are not so easy to handle, especially the, the case of uh, the Apostle Paul, the two-year-old case of the Apostle Paul. You know, Paul was a prisoner with no official charges against him. He was a Jew that his own brethren wanted to kill, and he was a Roman that the government didn't know what to do with. You know, that's really what he's got here. He's got this man, no charges, his people want to kill him, and the Roman government doesn't know what to do with him. That's Paul. And so Paul is really a dilemma for Festus, isn't he? As he comes into office, he's handed this dilemma. And you know, it's not long before he has to make some decisions regarding Paul. And so in the passage before us this morning, we see Paul's trial before Festus now. In chapter 24, we had his trial before Felix. Now we have Paul's trial before Festus. First of all, this morning we see the occasion the occasion. Verse 1 says, Now when Festus was come into the province, after three days he ascended from Caesarea to Jerusalem. Luke begins his account here of these events uh, that led to Paul once again standing trial. He, he sort of gives us the background, if you want. He gives us the occasion that led to Paul standing trial once again, and this time before the governor Festus. And verse 1 tells us that after three days, you know, after he arrives in Caesarea, he's just been installed as governor. After three days, he goes immediately up to Jerusalem. And he's going there to meet with the Sanhedrin. He's going there to meet the high priest, to meet the other leaders of the Jews. You know, this makes sense, doesn't it? You know, he's just been installed as governor. It's a good idea to go and meet those you're going to govern, especially the leaders of those people. You know, Caesarea was the political capital of Judea, but Jerusalem was still the, the cultural and the religious capital, wasn't it? This was still the, in the eyes of the Jews, this is still the capital. Okay, this is where you go to find the leaders of the nation. And so it's natural that Festus, as a new governor, wants to pay a visit to Jerusalem. He wants to get acquainted with his, his new subjects, if you like. And so he heads to Jerusalem after three days. You know, as soon as he arrives in Jerusalem... He's met by the Jewish leaders, and what do they immediately do? They immediately drag up Paul's case and begin to accuse Paul yet again before the new governor. Verse 2, it says, Then the high priest and the chief of the Jews informed him against Paul and besought him. They straight away, at first chance they get, the first opportunity, they bring up Paul's case and they begin to accuse Paul again to Festus. This time. Now remember, two years has passed. Two years has gone by since the start of chapter 24 when they came before Felix and presented their charges, their accusations against Paul. Two years has gone by since that trial. You would think surely they would have let some of this, this anger wane. You know, that some of this would have just gone by the, by the wayside. You know, Paul's out of the picture, he's in prison. Surely they would let it go. But you know, such is their hatred of Paul that immediately at the first chance they get, 
They bring up Paul's case with the new governor and their intent is, once again, they want to see Paul killed. That's really what they're going for. They want to see Paul killed. You know, verse 3 tells us that they desire a favour from Festus. It says, And desired favour against him, that he would send for him to Jerusalem, laying wait in the way to kill him. They desire a favour here from Festus. Now, perhaps they thought because he's a, a new governor, he's only just come into the office, you know, perhaps he's, he's a bit green and this is the ideal time to manipulate him, you know, to put some pressure on him to do their bidding. The word that's translated desire, uh, desired sorry, here in verse 3 is in the present tense and so it's the idea that this is a continuous asking. It's not just they asked once for a favour, they continually pressed for this favour. They are relentless. You see, it was an attempt to pressure a novice administrator into doing their bidding. That's what they're trying to do here, to put the pressure upon him to do what they want. And they're putting pressure upon him to do something before he has the facts too, aren't they? Okay? Before he ever has a chance to interview Paul himself and talk to Paul, they're putting pressure upon him to do this. And the favour they want is they want Festus to bring Paul back to Jerusalem. They're saying, send for Paul. That he comes back to Jerusalem. And you know, probably this request is made under the pretext that they want to try him again. They want to retry him in Jerusalem before the Sanhedrin. You know, that might have been their, their pretext. That might have been what they were saying to Festus. But Luke tells us the real reason. It says at the end of verse 3, laying wait in the way to kill him. This is the real reason they wanted Paul to be moved. They wanted another opportunity to assassinate Paul. Okay, Remember, this is what they tried to do before Paul was rushed out of Jerusalem down to Caesarea uh, by Lysias, the chief captain. This was their intent. They wanted to ambush Paul and kill him. And they missed that opportunity. And so now they're looking for another opportunity. They're going to have men waiting on the road to ambush and kill Paul. Now it's interesting here, the previous plot against Paul's life was by 40 fanatical men. You know, these fanatics. You know, remember they took that oath. They wouldn't eat or drink until they killed Paul. Um, One commentator wrote this week, he said, they must have been starving by now. Two years has gone by. But you know, this first assassination plot was by 40 fanatical Jews. And now this time, notice who's doing it. It's the high priest and it's the chief of the Jews. It's the leaders this time. They're the ones who are themselves um, coming up with this, this idea to lay in wait and kill Paul. They're presenting this. You see, this is how far their hatred for Paul has brought them. Before they consented to the plot, didn't they? They agreed to it. But this time, they're actually the ones who are instigating it, who are planning it. Now, these are supposed to be the religious leaders. They're supposed to be the ones who are upholding the law, and not just any law, God's holy law. But here they are, they're so consumed by hatred that they're willing to commit murder. They're plotting to murder Paul. You know, really what they're doing here is they're demonstrating the truth of Christ's words in John chapter 8, verse 44, where Christ said that their father was the devil. Just turn over there, John 8. In John 8, verse 44, 
<coughs> says, Ye are of your father the devil, and the lusts of your father ye will do. He was a murderer from the beginning, and abode not in the truth, because there is no truth in him. When he speaketh a lie, he speaketh of his own, for he is a liar and the father of it. He says, You're of your father the devil, and the lust of your father you will do. He was a murderer from the beginning. They're really just following their father, aren't they? The devil. They're proving the truth of Christ's words here. So far have these so-called religious leaders gone down this road of sin and this road of hatred uh, for Paul. Now, in verse 4 and 5 now, we see that Festus, he answers very wisely. Okay, in verse five, 4 it says, But Festus answered that Paul should be kept at Caesarea, and that he himself would depart shortly thither. Let them therefore, said he, which among you are able, go down with me and accuse this man, if there be any wickedness in him. Now, Festus here is very wise in his response, isn't he? Remember, he's, he's just been newly appointed to the position. He could have quite easily given in. But instead, he very wisely here refuses to do as they've asked. And instead, he invites them to come down from Jerusalem to Caesarea and bring their accusations there. He says, I'll reopen the case for you. I'll retry the case, but it'll be at Caesarea. And you can come and you can bring your accusations against Paul. You know, really, the unseen hand of God is at work here, isn't it, in all this? You know, Festus could have quite easily decided, hey, it'd be much easier just to get this guy out of prison, give him over to the Jews, let them do what they want, keep them happy, keep them on side, and I start off on a really good note as governor of Judea. I mean, Felix was the complete opposite. He treated the Jews terribly. That's why they didn't like him. Festus had a real chance here, didn't he? to get on their side, to get in their good books. He could have handed him over immediately, but instead he refuses, and in doing so, he's protecting the servant of God from an assassination plot that he doesn't even know about. But God knows, doesn't he? God's well aware that they're planning to kill him in the way, and so God moves Festus here to make this right decision and refuse to bring Paul up to Jerusalem. You see, this is the providential hand of God, isn't it? The unseen hand of God, once again protecting his servant, Paul. So we've seen the occasion that leads to the trial. Now, secondly, this morning, we see the trial itself, the trial. In verse 6, we read, And when he had tarried among them more than ten days, he went down unto Caesarea, and the next day, sitting on the judgment seat, commanded Paul to be brought. And when he was come, the Jews which came down from Jerusalem stood round about and laid many and grievous complaints against Paul, which they could not prove. While he answered for himself, neither against the law of the Jews, neither against the temple, nor yet against Caesar have I offended anything at all. In verse 6, we learn that Festus now tarries, um, it says more than 10 days, so in other words, 10 days and then basically leaves. Uh, he tarries those 10 days and then he goes back to Caesarea. And upon arriving in Caesarea, he doesn't waste any time, does he? The very next day, he calls for Paul to come before him. Okay, verse 6. And when he had tarried among them uh, more than 10 days, he went down under Caesarea and the next day, sitting on the judgment seat, commanded Paul to be brought. He didn't waste any time. He's back in Caesarea. The very next day, he's sitting on his judgment seat and he commands Paul 
to be brought in before him. Now the word translated judgment seat here is from the Greek word bema. And so he's sitting upon the bema seat here. A raised platform where the rulers would uh, make their speeches and where judges would sit to, to settle the matter, okay, to, to le- settle legal disputes. And it was also the place where they would sit and supervise and award athletic contests. And so that's what this beamer seat is. It's this raised platform where the ruler would sit. And so Paul here is brought before the beamer seat. And he's there to face trial once again. That's what he's there for. He's there to face trial. And you know, in the room with Paul is also a group of Jews. They've taken Festus up on the offer and they've travelled back from Jerusalem down to Caesarea with him and they're there to do exactly that, accuse Paul. Accuse him before Festus. We read on in verse 7, they stand around Paul in a, in a threatening manner. Okay, it says, And when he was come, the Jews which came down from Jerusalem stood round about and laid many and grievous complaints against Paul, which they could not prove. It says they stood round about. In other words, they, they're encircling Paul here. They're on every side. And they're throwing their accusations against Paul. They're grievous accusations, it says, or serious accusations against Paul. And they're doing it in a really threatening manner, aren't they? Paul's in the middle and they're all shouting at him for every side, uh, laying these accusations against him. Yeah, notice this time they don't have their, their fancy lawyer with them. Tertullus is not there. This time they're on their own and they're throwing their accusations themselves. They're speaking for themselves. You know, we're not told exactly what they accused Paul of here, but we can assume that it's basically the exact same thing all over again. We can assume that it's basically chapter 24, what they accused him of there. It's those same things being dragged up again and accused, uh, thrown, thrown again against Paul here before Festus. Now, the same things from two years ago. They haven't let anything go. They've held on to all these things. You know, at the end of verse 7, it indicates that they couldn't prove any of it. You know, that's what Luke says. He says, which they could not prove. They couldn't provide any evidence. They couldn't provide a single witness to support their accusations. You know, at the start of chapter 24, when they came the first time, the same thing was true, wasn't it? They came and they didn't bring with them any of the Jews from Asia, the ones who actually accused Paul. They had no witnesses. They had no evidence. They couldn't prove any of the things they were saying about Paul. And now two years, are on, two years have gone by and they still have no witnesses and they still have no evidence against Paul. They couldn't prove any of it. And, you know, that means that Paul, all he has to do basically is say, I didn't do it. It's just his word against theirs. All he has to do here to defend himself is merely deny the charges. And that's what Paul does. Verse 8 says, When he answered for himself, neither against the law of the Jews, neither against the temple, nor yet against Caesar, have I offended anything at all. Paul, very simply here, says, I didn't do it. He says, I'm innocent. I haven't offended. I haven't transgressed the law of the Jews. I haven't done anything against the temple and I haven't done anything against Caesar. I haven't done anything against Rome. Now put yourself in Paul's shoes. He must have been growing tired of all this. You know, this is the, about the third time he's been accused of all these things. When he was before the Sanhedrin, they had a go at him. Then he was before Felix, they had a go at him. And now before Festus, they're having a go at him. They're saying the same things each time. The same old lies are being dragged up. 
And Paul's giving the same response every time. Paul must have been growing tired of this whole situation. It seems like he's going round and round in circles, doesn't it? He's not getting anywhere. Going round and round in circles. You know, it would seem from later on in the chapter that uh, Festus, like Felix, is unimpressed by the claims of the Jews. Just read verse 17 with me of chapter 25. It says, Therefore, when they were come hither, without any delay on the morrow, I sat on the judgment seat and commanded the man to be brought forth, against whom, when the accusers stood up, they brought none accusation of such things as I supposed, but had certain questions against him of their own superstition and of one Jesus, whom was dead, whom Paul affirmed to be alive. You get a bit more of an insight into what had happened here before Festus. And basically, he's come to the same conclusion as Felix, hasn't he? He's done nothing against Roman law. Really, what they're they're upset about is his theology, his his beliefs concerning this one, Jesus. And so Festus is not impressed by their claims either. He's not swayed by it. He doesn't believe what they're saying. He doesn't think Paul's guilty of anything. He seems to realize it's not a matter of Roman law. It's simply a matter of their personal beliefs, their theology. And so once again, the outcome of this trial should have been Paul being set free, shouldn't it? I mean, there's no evidence. There's no indication he's done anything wrong according to Roman law. The outcome should have been that Festus said, you're innocent and set him free. And yet once again, what do we find? We find that the governor acts in his own interests. He acts in his own interests. And that brings us to our last point this morning, the proposal. The proposal, verse 9, we read, it says, But Festus, willing to do the Jews a pleasure, answered Paul and said, Wilt thou go up to Jerusalem, and there be judged of these things before me? Then said Paul, I stand at Caesar's judgment seat, where I ought to be judged. To the Jews have I done no wrong, as thou very well knowest. For if I be an offender or have committed anything worthy of death, I refuse not to die. But if there be none of these things whereof these accuse me, no man may deliver me unto them. I appeal unto Caesar. And then Festus, when he had conferred with the council, answered, Hast thou appealed unto Caesar? Unto Caesar shout thou go. You know, Festus here acts in his own interest, doesn't he? As I said, he's just tried Paul. He's listened to the evidence. He's listened to the accusations. He's well aware Paul's innocent. He's done nothing against Roman law. He hasn't really done anything against the Jews either. And yet instead of ruling Paul he's innocent and letting him go free, he acts in his own interests. And he decides he's going to try and do the Jews a favor here. Show them pleasure. You see, he wants to start out on good terms, doesn't he? He wants to start out his administration on good terms with the Jews. And so he makes this proposal here to Paul. And the proposal is, he says, Paul, will you be willing to go back to Jerusalem and be judged there concerning these things? That's what he says there in verse 9. But Festus, willing to do the Jews a pleasure, answered Paul and said, Wilt thou go up to Jerusalem and there be judged of these things before me? So essentially the proposal was that Paul would be taken back to Jerusalem, he would stand trial yet again before the Sanhedrin, and that Festus would preside over the proceedings. You know, the fact that he is willing to do this is practically an admission 
that Paul is innocent. You think about it, if he was guilty according to Roman law, Festus wouldn't be handing him over the Jews, Festus would be taking him out and dealing with him. It's an admission that Paul is innocent according to Roman law, that he's willing to take him back up to Jerusalem and effectively let the Jews deal with him. You know, Festus only makes this proposal because he wants to show a pleasure unto the Jews. He wants to get them on, on good terms, get them on side. You know, earlier in the chapter, he refused to do exactly what, they're now, what he's now proposing to do. You know, he started out really well, didn't he? He said, no, I won't bring him up to Jerusalem. You come down to Caesarea and I'll try him there. But now he proposes to do exactly what they wanted. You know, what's changed? Well, perhaps it's the fact that as he's listened to the Jews present their arguments, he's well aware of their hatred for Paul. He's beginning to understand their, their hatred, how much they dislike this man. And he's seen the fact that Paul is innocent according to Roman law, and he's thinking, mate, the easiest thing to do, take him up to Jerusalem. You know, that's what seems to have changed here. And so he proposes to take him back to Jerusalem if Paul is willing to go. Now, put yourself in Paul's shoes again. His heart must have sunk again at this point. You know, you think about it. You think about all he's gone through, everything that he's faced, the, the, the round and round circles he's going. You, you think about it. His heart must have sunk at this point as Festus makes this proposal. Because yet again, it seems like everything's going against him, doesn't it? Everything's going wrong. And he's not going forward. He's just going round and round or going backwards even. You know, he'd already spent two full years in prison when he didn't deserve to be there. That was the result of the last trial. He'd ended up in prison just sitting there. He had a bit of freedom, but he couldn't leave the palace. He'd had his freedom taken away. He'd been sitting there waiting for two full years. He gets another chance, another trial. And what does Festus do? He says, I'm going to send you to Jerusalem, the last place Paul wants to go. Paul is well aware that they want to kill him. He knows what they tried to do last time on the way. And he knows they're waiting for him. Now, Paul, at this point, must have been wondering, what is God doing? He must have been wondering, when are you going to act, Lord? When are you going to respond, Lord? You know, God was in control, wasn't he? God knew what he was doing. God knew what he was about to do. Even though Paul still didn't know, God knew exactly what he was doing. As Paul would soon find out. You see, knowing the danger now that faces him, if he's transferred to Jerusalem, Paul immediately refuses to agree to this proposal. You look there in verse 10, Paul's response. He says, Then said Paul, I stand at Caesar's judgment seat, where I ought to be judged. To the Jews have I done no wrong, as thou very well knowest. Paul's very bold here in his response, isn't he? He says, Festus, I am right where I ought to be judged, in a Roman court. This is where I should be judged. This is where it should take place. And he says, Festus, you know very well I've done nothing wrong against the Jews. He says, you know I'm innocent. You know, really, this is a sharp rebuke against Festus, isn't it? It's a sharp rebuke here. Because basically what he's saying to Festus Festus here is he's saying, Festus, you need to uphold the law and stop trying to get favour with the Jews. That's what he's saying here. He says, listen, stop trying to play favourites. Stop trying to get people on side. Do your job and uphold the law. That's what he's saying. He says, I'm not going to Jerusalem. I'm staying here and being judged in the Roman courts. You see, Paul could see the warning signs, couldn't he? You know, the alarm bells are going off in his head, if you like. 
he could see the warning signs. You know, Festus here in Caesarea, sitting upon his own judgment seat, after hearing the Jews, is willing to show them some favoritism and hand Paul to them to take back to Jerusalem. What's he going to do when he gets to Jerusalem? What's going to happen in Jerusalem when Festus is there uh, presiding over proceedings and all the Sanhedrin's there screaming their hatred at Paul and all the Jews are screaming their hatred at Paul? What's Festus going to do then? Well, he's probably going to hand him over, isn't he? Paul can see the warning size here. Paul knew all too well that he was not going to get a fair trial at Jerusalem. The safest and the most legitimate place for him to be tried was right here before Caesar's judgment seat. In other words, before Festus as Caesar's representative. That was the safest and that was the best place for him to be. You know, verse 11, Paul goes on to make it clear that he's not seeking undeserved favor from the court. He just wants justice. Look in verse 11. He says, For if I be an offender or have committed anything worthy of death, I refuse not to die. But if there be none of these things, whereof these accuse me, no man may deliver me unto them. He says, I'm not seeking undeserved favor. He says, I just want justice. He says, if I've done something wrong, if I'm guilty, even of death, fine, kill me. He says, I'm willing to suffer the punishment, pay the price. You know, by the same token, he says, if these things cannot be proven, then I'm not going to be handed over to the Jews. I'm not going to be delivered unto them. You know, the word that's translated deliver here in verse 11, where it says, no man may deliver me unto them. That word deliver means to give freely. It's the idea of giving a gift. Paul basically says, he says, I'm not going to be given as a gift to the Jews. I'm not going to be used as a favor to appease them. Now, Paul is very bold here, isn't he? He's very bold in asserting his rights under the law. Paul is innocent. So he says, you can't hand me over to the Jews. I'm an innocent man. And it's because Paul could sense his hopes of a fair trial were slipping away that Paul now takes the only option that's left to him. He appeals under Caesar. That's the end of verse 11 there. He says, I appeal under Caesar. He's basically been backed into a corner, hasn't he? And Paul sees this is his only option. As a Roman citizen, he has the right to appeal under Caesar, and so he exercises that right. It's the right to appeal to the the highest court of all, the emperor himself. And according to the commentator Paul Hill, this right of appeal goes back to the 5th century B.C., It gave a citizen the right to appeal a magistrate's verdict to a jury of fellow citizens. Under the empire, the emperor himself became the court of appeal, replacing the former jury of peers. So it started out as you could appeal unto a jury if the magistrate's decision was not fair. Now you could appeal unto Caesar. And the law was put there to protect the Roman citizens from exploitive governors. You know, a governor who might be swayed and might be unfair in their judgments. And you know, this appeal could be made even before a verdict was handed out. If the, the one on trial could sense that, hey, this is a potential here of injustice, this is not going to be fair, he could make the appeal. Even before the verdict. And that's what Paul does here, isn't it? He makes his appeal. And you see, the point is that once an appeal was made under Caesar... 
the proceedings had to stop. That was it. The, the court, the trial all had to come to an end. It all had to cease. The judge had no choice but to stop everything and to send the prisoner off to Rome to transfer the case to Caesar. Now, Wearsby writes this. He says, By appealing to Caesar, Paul forced the Romans to guard him and to take him to Rome. It must have infuriated the, jo- the Jewish leaders when Paul, by one statement, took the case completely out of their hands. They wouldn't have been happy. By that one statement, Paul has taken everything out of their hands. It's out of Festus's hands too. And Paul is now on his way to Rome. Now, in verse 12 we read, it says, Then Festus, when he had conferred with the council, answered, Hast thou appealed unto Caesar? Under Caesar shalt thou go. Festus, he confers with the council. In other words, he asks his advisors what to do. And then he makes his declaration. He says, well, under the law, Paul, if that's what you want, you're off to Rome. You'll be taken to Caesar just as you've requested. As I said, you know, without doubt, the Jews here must have been very unhappy about this turn of events. They've waited two years for this, and now Paul's taken completely away from them. But, you know, at the same time, you can, you can imagine that Festus is a very relieved man. Imagine him. Very relieved man. He didn't really know what to do here. And now it's taken completely out of his hands. Paul is no longer his problem. And the best bit, the Jews can't even get upset at him. Because, hey, his hands are tied by the law. And so Paul is now finally destined for Rome. He's moving. He's going to Rome. You know, by this strange set of circumstances, the Lord was fulfilling his promise to Paul that he would bear witness for him at Rome. Now the commentator Barnes, he wrote this, It was in this mysterious way that Paul's long-cherished desire to see the Roman church and to preach the gospel there was to be gratified. For this he had prayed long, and now at length his pu- this purpose was to be fulfilled. God answers prayer, but it is often in a way which we little anticipate. He so orders the train of events, he so places us amidst a pressure of circumstances that the desire is granted in a way which we could never have anticipated, but which shows in the best manner that he is a hearer of prayer. And that really is what happens here. God shows himself to be a hearer and answerer of prayer. He heard Paul's prayer. He'd heard it the whole time, hadn't he? Right before Paul even went to Jerusalem, he was praying about going to Rome. God had heard that prayer. God knew. God knew exactly what he was doing through all this. And God now answers Paul's prayer in the most unexpected way. I'm sure Paul was not expecting, he was not anticipating that Rome would give him an all-expenses-paid trip across to Rome. This was not what Paul was thinking was going to happen. You see, this whole story here is a testament to the wisdom, the power, and the goodness of our God. In His sovereignty, He is able to take the most difficult circumstances and direct them to achieve His purpose and direct them for our good. Now, Joseph in the Old Testament, he experienced the same wonderful truth, didn't he? Now, he understood that God was in control right throughout his life. He didn't understand it fully until the end, but did he? Now, right at the end of his life, he could look back and he could see that God meant it all for good. In Genesis 50, verse 20, it says, But as for you, ye thought evil against me, 
But God meant it unto good, to bring to pass as it is this day, to save much people alive. You know, Joseph, as he looked back on his life, he could see that God meant it all for good. God had a purpose. And the same is true now for Paul. As Paul looks back on it all, Paul can see, hey, God meant it all for good. There was a purpose to it all. There was a reason for it all. See, God can take the evil intentions of men and order them to fulfill his goals. And that's the overriding truth that comes through in all of this. You know, all the false false accusations against Paul, along with all the unfavorable trials, was all used by God to take him to Rome. You think about all that Paul's been through since he came down to Jerusalem. Now, being falsely accused in the temple, standing upon the steps and addressing the people. And what happened? They rioted. They wanted to kill him. He's then in the tower and he's about to be whipped by the Romans until he says, I'm a Roman. And they stop. He goes before the Sanhedrin. The Sanhedrin almost kills him because they don't like what he's saying. He's then before Felix. Felix unjustly puts him in prison for two years. He's now before Festus. Festus wants to take him to Jerusalem. Everything's gone against Paul. Everything seems to be going wrong. All these false accusations, all these trials are going wrong, going against Paul. But God knew what he was doing, didn't he? God knew exactly what he was doing through it all. And God used all of those events, every single one of those bad outcomes, God used every single one of them to bring Paul to the point where he's now going to Rome and he's going to preach the gospel in Rome under Caesar's household. You know, Philippians talks about that, doesn't it? The fact that Paul got to address Caesar's household and there's people who get saved in Caesar's household. How did that happen? Through this chain of events. See, at the time, it must have seemed like everything was going wrong. It must have seemed like everything was against him. He must have sat there in prison thinking, Lord, what's going on? I shouldn't be here. I want to be in Rome. I want to get moving, Lord. You said I'm going there. Let's go. But God had a plan, didn't he? And God's timing is always best. God answered Paul's prayer in the most perfect way when God was ready. And beloved, we need to remember today that no matter how dark, no matter how difficult times get, God is still in control. That's the reality. God is still in control. And sometimes it does seem like everything's against us. It seems like everything's dark and dreary. It's not going right. One thing after another. Beloved, God knows. God knows what he's doing. He hasn't made a mistake. He hasn't let his hands off the wheel. God knows what he's doing. And he is hearing our earnest prayers as well. We just have to patiently wait upon him. And remember, the Lord is in control. Let's close in a word of prayer. Dear Lord and Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for your word. Lord, we thank you for the fact that as we look at Paul's life, we can see how you are wondrously in control every step of the way. Lord, even when things seem to be going wrong, seem to be going against Paul, Lord, you knew. You had a plan. You had a purpose. And Lord, I thank you that you know each of our hardships. You know the things we're going through. You know the trials that we face. And Lord, even though we can't see the end of it, you already know what you're doing through it. Lord, help us just to patiently wait upon you and seek you in prayer. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.